0: To turn myself on Zechariah chapter 2 celebrating that Danny got his visa because you know he's an alien yes he's a resident alien we love him but he's an alien well I have I, I've just enjoyed my time already. Uh, you know, this, this series has been in my heart for several months uh, and wanting to go through, but I've just enjoyed my preparation times and my, uh, just the Lord illuminating what is in the scriptures in this prophetic book. But uh, I, I hope that translates and my prayer has been that it would translate to you, that you also would have uh, just, not just excitement, but, but excitement from an understanding of the depth of God's word. That is the depth of his revelation uh, to us that is, is Christ-exalting in all of the scriptures. Let's read Zechariah 2, we'll go through, it's only 13 verses, we'll go through this chapter. The word of the Lord says, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens declares the Lord. Up, escape from Zion, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory mm. sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them and they shall become plunder for those who, who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, and behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Jerusalem as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Father, may we feel the rousing of our God. May we feel it in our hearts, and may it it become for us light and life to live by. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 400s A.D., around 411, after the fall of Rome, Augustine, who was a bishop in a North African town in present-day Algeria, a little town hippo, he wrote a a work that ended up being 22 volumes, and he entitled it The City of God, along with his earlier work, The Confessions, which starts with the famous line, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. It's it, The city of God and the confessions are, are lasting works of Augustine. In the city of God, Augustine sought to encourage Christians to live for the city of God rather than the earthly city, which now we, we say is the city of man, even in referring to Augustine's earthly city that he was describing. But the city of man is the temporal here and now city that's centered around man's glory, man's authority, and man's pleasure. The city of God, in contrast, he said, is an eternal city centered around God's eternal glory, his eternal authority, and his eternal blessing, which is our good. Now, the theme Augustine wrote about has been a topic throughout all of Christianity, and it was the topic here in Zechariah chapter 2. Forsake the stuff of the world and seek the eternal kingdom of God. John Bunyan picked up these themes and his allegorical works of Pilgrim's Progress and the Holy War. It's it's an important theme for Christians because it's an important theme for God. Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 is about this theme. I pray that you keep them from the evil one. I, I pray that you don't take them out of the world. You're leaving them in the world, but they're here for a purpose. May they know our love in the midst of the world. And when God calls his people to Mount Zion... In the Old Testament, he's calling them to forsake the world as they know it, its selfish values, its selfish paradigms, and seek his eternal dwelling to find true happiness. And Zechariah 2 is the call, the vision that he gives, and the explanation is, is, is God's call to his people to forsake the city of man and seek the city built and protected by God. It's the same city Abraham sought, Hebrews 11, 9, and 10 tells us by faith he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land. See, even Abraham knew that the land of promise wasn't the only thing to live for. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was looking for an eternal city. Abraham was looking for the city of God, and that's God's call to all of his people. This passage in Zechariah is the promise of God to expand the reach of the radius of his glory in order to capture his people for his glory. Now, an interesting uh, caption is villages without walls in verse verse 4. Run to that man, Jerusalem, shall be inhabited as villages without walls. Really, a city without walls. This would have been very peculiar to hear in that that, uh, time because the city walls were the protection for the city. Remember, Nehemiah, once the temple is rebuilt, Nehemiah goes to the king and says, how can I be glad when the city of my God lies, uh, the walls lie in ruins, they're not protected, the temple's not protected. It was a big deal, even people living outside the city Everybody knew if he was under attack, they would come inside of the city and be protected by the city walls. And here, God is telling Zechariah, but this man that was there, the city won't have walls. For them, that was interesting. But what God also gives him is proper measurements to go by. It's a, this, this vision is a, a reordering of perspective, so to speak. The man carrying the measuring line is contrasted to the measuring line from chapter 1, verse 16, where God stretches that out. Here a man is stretching out a measuring line looking for the dimensions of Jerusalem. But God reminds him, no, I'm the one who brings the measurement. The man with the measuring line perhaps represents the zeal of God's people to reconstruct the temple and the city walls in and around Jerusalem. But God is adjusting the perspective because that man's perspective represents uh, perspective that's too narrow. See, Jerusalem was never intended to be the end all in, its, in and of itself. It was pointing, it was foreshadowing something greater and it, uh, foreshadowing a city that was without boundaries, beyond boundaries. The restored city is, we're being told, is, would be, and Zechariah is being told would be too big and too full to measure. Too many people, too many animals. You can't measure it. But the truth is God measures his city. We, we have in this vision that God measures his city and God protects his city. There'll be a command to participate in God's city that's spelled out in the second half of the chapter. But here, God wants everyone to know that his city has measurements and expectations. These are helpful truths that we need to constantly remind ourselves of. The man with the measuring line can represent the, the cities we try to build. We zealously build uh, for God, but we use our own measurements and our own expectations and expect God to match those. We begin with God in mind, but eventually we build this, our own cities that we're comfortable with. We want God to be comfortable with what we're comfortable with. And we usually will build a city that has minimal sacrifice required. See, when you go to Scripture, it's total sacrifice. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. That's not the life that we measure for ourselves, typically, because we don't want that much sacrifice and devotion. But the question still remains, how do we measure Christianity? Possible test would be, what do you expect from other Christians? How do you expect them to walk with you? How do you expect them to follow up with you, to fellowship with you? How do you expect them to be a part of the church? What do you expect from Christians that are far off that you don't know? What do you expect? Because we need to be careful of our own sneaky, self-righteous parameters for others in the body of Christ that we, just like the Pharisees, we don't hold ourselves to. We need to be careful of measuring others politically. We need to be careful to not measure others economically or socially. These are faulty parameters, and our culture measures people in these three categories to this day do we agree politically, do we have the same amount of money, and uh, is it beneficial for me to interact with you socially? And that can sneak into the church very quickly if we're not careful. We can can also fall into the trap of personal measurements for ourselves, for our, our own Christianity that we're walking out. We can run after the wrong definition of success. We run after the wrong definition of identity. Where are we finding, how are we defining success in our lives and how are we defining our identity for the Christian life? We can slip into worldly definitions of success, seeking fortune, seeking fame, I want popularity, I want to be well known. We run after things to be, to be known and defined by those things rather than being known and defined by the love of Christ. And we attach our identity And whenever we attach our identity to something apart from Christ, we will be in chaos and we will be in crisis in our hearts because these are the wrong building materials for the church. Worldly definitions of success and identity, politics, uh, economics, society, those are the wrong things to build the church. That's what Paul would describe as the the wood, hay, and straw from 1 Corinthians 3. But we need God's measurements. We need to build with things that will last. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. That's a question for us, church. How are we building our own lives? How are we building God's church? What, what are there... what are the instruments we're using, but what measurements are we using? Are we using God's measurements? Because God measures his city. He also protects his city. Not only will God reach beyond natural boundaries, he will protect his city by his power. We see that in verse 5. The vision and promise is to be a wall of fire for his city, which would immediately recall for them uh, the fire that, that led Israel and Moses and protected them. It was leading them out of Egypt, but also protecting them from Pharaoh's army while the Red Sea opened. It was a pillar of fire to guide and protect. God's when God does this in the scriptures, but he does it in our own lives. When, we, when something catches our memory to, to go back to a situation of God's faithfulness, that is to give us it's to fuel our faith and trust that God will continue to be faithful in our lives. That's why I love singing old songs, old choruses, old hymns, whatever it is. When we sang a little while ago in the presence of a holy God, uh, I, I remember singing that as a teenager and in college, and I was taken back to, like, wow, that, I remember singing that as a college student. and. God's still faithful. I'm I'm overwhelmed and I'm struck with his faithfulness in that moment to say, God, you are still as faithful. God does those things on purpose. His faithful protection in the past fuels our trust in his future faithfulness. So he reminds us so that he will be a, a wall of fire. It's supposed to remember in order to look forward. God's city requires protection because God's city faces onslaught. God has enemies, and he has a lot of enemies. But listen, God's city is not protected by famous Christians. Can I go on the Kanye West trail a little bit? I have not listened to Kanye West's song. I I had like heard a little clip of the Chick-fil-A, close on Sunday thing. I just don't understand it. Uh, I've never been a... Kanye fan, so that's why I'm kind of like, eh. But musically, I really hope this is genuine. I hope he really has had a wonderful relationship and encounter with the Lord that has saved him, and this is going to be great. I really do hope for that. But you know, he came out and he said, The people who are going to judge me the most are the Christians. And I thought two things one, you're right. And two, how did you know that? New believers don't say that kind of stuff. So I'm thinking, you had a relationship with him in the past. That's how you knew that. So maybe God reawakened something. Cool. Bring it. But like my, my kids will get really excited when famous people have an encounter. Justin Bieber gets baptized. everybody's like, "Yo, Justin Bieber he got baptized and it's great." and like, that's great. I'm thankful. I know he grew up with a mom who's a believer, and he had an encounter as a child with the Lord. I've read the story and stuff. That's cool. But the kingdom of God is, God's not waiting around saying, if I just got one famous person, then the gospel will really go forward. We think that way, y'all. Now, let me pick on your politics a little bit, thinking that if we have the right person in office, then the gospel can really go forward. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. God doesn't need famous people. He doesn't need famous Christians. Because remember the story about the rich man and Lazarus? Rich man, Lazarus, he says, can you just give me something? Rich man says, no, no. Every day they both die. Rich man goes to hell. Lazarus is by Abraham. Rich man looks up, hey, can you just send him? Give me a drop of water. Still wants to command Lazarus from hell. Still wants to command him. Nope, that's not going to happen. Abraham says it's too big a chasm, and it's still there. It's affixed. Well, if you just have him, have him go tell my brothers. Somebody go tell my brothers not to come here. You know what Abraham said. If, even if somebody rise from the dead, they have the prophets. They have the word of God. If somebody rises from that, they still wouldn't believe. So look. We have the resurrected Christ, and people still don't believe. So we have to be careful in our own measurements of how the gospel is going to go forward. If we can just have one famous person or one elected official and preserve that, then, then the gospel can really go forward. No, that's not God's plan. God says you are the one to bring the gospel forward by its advancing in your own heart and advancing through you. Now, I also think, because I've heard, I've heard some different interviews, Go back to Kanye. I've heard some interviews. Uh, I don't sense that there's that is a really spiritual encounter, and he's describing that. I don't sense there's a there's a uh, let's just play it out. Even if he's doing it for money, the, the, what's coming out of his mouth is truth. Remember what, what Paul says to the Philippians. Look, these guys are doing it so they can make a buck. That's why they're that's why they're on our side. They're looking for some some something that that's something some kind of payback. But he says, don't correct them. Correct, he tells the Galatians, "No, not correct them because that's the wrong gospel. So he says, even if the gospel, he tells the Philippians, even if the gospel goes out and it's, it's for the wrong motivation, it's still the gospel. So listen, I really hope, and I trust, God is using Kanye West to bring people to him. I believe that's happening. I know somebody that got saved at an Amway convention in the 90s. God uses anything. <laughs> This is anything. And we want to be open for him to use anything. And not use our measurements to try to figure out if somebody's measuring up to how we think a Christian ought to live out their lives. God's kingdom is advancing, and that's what he's saying to Zechariah, to us. I got off my nose. I have no idea where I am. Let me see here. He says he'll protect his city with fire. That's his fire. We don't make that fire. We also need to recognize that his, what, what his fire is protecting in this passage. His fire is protecting his glory. Look at verse 5. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. The, the fire's in the middle. The wall of fire is all around. He's protecting his glory. We want God's protection to include, listen, we want God's Protection to include protecting us from injury and harm in our lives. So, God, if you're, if you're blessing me, if you're protecting me, you're going to protect me from injury and tragedy. And But that's not God's promise. Follow this. The promise is the protecting of his glory, which may include us suffering amid the brokenness we're surrounded by in our bodies and in this world. God's promise to protect his glory is a greater promise than keeping us from injury and harm. Follow? His promise to protect his glory in us is a greater promise than simply to keep us from injury and harm. It tells us that injury and harm won't win. God has the final word. God's work of love in us is too strong and too powerful for any power of hell to separate us from him. So when we're tempted, when we're dealing with physical calamity and we're dealing with emotional stress, we know this will not have this will not separate me because God's love is too strong. And we have the promise in Romans 8. Took so out a few verses from that passage there. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those oh, I went over that too fast. I apologize. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If we're called according to his glory, we have the promise that he's working and protecting his glory in us no matter what happens. Verse 35, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or, per- or distress, or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither Death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a greater promise, church, that our measly God, can you just, get, what, can I stop getting splinters in this life, God? Please? Because they're annoying. God says, I'm working something greater than your personal temporal comfort. I'm working something greater, something that is refining and the glory and the weight of his glory in us to shine through us, to shine to us and then through us. That's his love coming to us. Now, it's a city of glory. That's what God's protecting. The proper measuring line for God's city is his glory. The expectation for his city is his glory and he will protect his glory. But what is his glory? And why is that good? Glad you asked. The Old Testament word for glory carried the understanding of weight, worth, dignity, and splendor. God's, think about it this way God's glory is the substance of who he is, God's glory is the substance of his character. His glory is also revealing who he is as the substance of his character. So his glory is is who he is, but it's also glorious for God to reveal that glory, to reveal his worth and his dignity and his splendor. Excuse me. Remember how Moses asked in Exodus 33, he asked to see God's glory. God, show me your glory. God came to him in a cloud. I think it was a bright cloud because Moses' face shone afterwards. He would His face would glow. God comes to him in a bright cloud on that mountain. He saw God's character. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, who will not leave the guilty unpunished. He saw the character of God, but he saw it in this brilliance and brightness that left an effect on his physical self. We don't know God's glory without him revealing it to us. And God is committed to his glory. This is the good part. Why is it good? God is committed to his glory. He spreads his glory. He protects his glory. And that's a good thing. But is it egotistical for God to draw attention to his glory? No. Absolutely not. Remember, he he doesn't approach things like we do in our sinfulness For God to let something else be more glorious than who he is would make him less than God, which means he wouldn't be God. The essence of being God is that he draws attention to his godness. I'm God, and you're not I am. He draws attention to that, but he draws attention to that in order for us to respond to it in a two-way relationship, and that's our good. He reveals, we respond. We respond to the glory that we see, but we also, in this wonderful exchange, we experience a glory and then respond out of that glory with him. We see glory in him, and we love him for his glory. Our greatest happiness is found in Christ's preeminence and Christ's exaltation. That's why we were created. Remember, the, the rebuilt city of Jerusalem would be a shadow of what, would, what will be, because the church is that city without walls. And then we have a city in the second half. We have a city collected. It's a, an oracle. It's a, it's a sermon to go f- to follow the vision that's there. To vision, again, of God's dwelling in the midst of his people, and he's calling for a response to his glory. The first response is leaving Babylon. He says, up, flee, escape. Those are urgent words. Do it now. From the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to the spiritual city in Revelation 18, Babylon represents the world, the system of the world, the thoughts of the world. Uh, the Apostle John in 1 John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, Father, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and, the, and pride of life, is not from the father but is from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of god abides forever clear distinction god is calling his people to leave the deceitful entanglements of the world the desires of the flesh the desires of the eyes and the pride of life but see this god collects his city He's gathering again. He had that promise in chapter 1. We have a promise here of a gathering, an in-gathering. God gathers the city of his glory out of the gutters of the world. And that's us. That's part of the glory, that he goes after the, the morally unattractive. He goes after the broken and the weak, and he joins us to himself. And this call is an urgent when the time is now, Don't delay. Don't make make any excuses. If we're stuck in miry clay, repent and run to him. Forsake, church, this is for all of us. Forsake the city of man and seek the city of God by faith. Escape to Zion. Flee what's bogged you down. Run from the temporal securities and comforts and significances and controls that we look for in this life to give us peace. Run to his glory because his glory is running to you. There's an interesting phrase. It happens three times in just this paragraph. It's repeated three times. And to tell God's people in verse 8, 9, and 11. The two words, sent me. The work of the one sent is to convey value. The one who touches you touches the apple of his eye. To judge sinful nations and to gather all nations together. And all of these actions, don't have to look too far All of these actions find their ultimate home in Jesus himself. To communicate value, look what Jesus said in Luke 12. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them, not one of them is forgotten before God. We forget those little birds, don't we? We might see a pigeon at the lakefront. We don't remember that pigeon once we leave. God does. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. We're not just one sparrow. We get to be many. We're more valuable. God sees us, church. He sees us, and he wants us to know our value is grounded in him, not in our our temporal efforts to find significance and value, but in him. We see Uh, Jesus' judgment, John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And Jesus gathers, John 10. I love this verse. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. He gathers his people. Church, the glory that was sent. Jesus, in this passage, he's telling again, Zechariah, I think Jesus is saying this to him, sent me. Jesus himself is saying this to Zechariah. And then we get to 2 Corinthians 4, and we see that Paul is connecting this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the glory of God. And we find all the contours and and all all the glory in Jesus himself. The action of God to send his glory is the revelation of Jesus so that we respond to Jesus. When we respond to the glory that is in Jesus, we complete the two-way relationship that God wants of revealing his glory and us responding to his glory. And what's the response? Look at verse 10. Here's our response. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Sing and rejoice because I am in your midst. Worship is God's gift to us to respond to him. Worship is a necessity in our lives. Moses, when he saw God's glory, he fell in worship. He fell on his face in worship. It's it's God's gift to us to experience The weight of God, the the worth of God, the dignity, the splendor of God. Remember when God's glory fell at the temple after it's been dedicated by Solomon? It said the priest, the tabernacle too, the priest couldn't enter because of the glory of God. And that's the the Shekinah glory is what it was known as. It, It was weighty. They couldn't stand in God's presence. And that helps us with verse 13. Be silent all flesh. We're singing and rejoicing. Yes, you're singing and rejoicing, but this be silent is a be alert because everybody's put on notice. God has roused himself. In Isaiah, we have the promise that it's, it's the, the zeal of God will accomplish this. God is about advancing and protecting his glory. He will accomplish the gospel going all over the world. And again, I love the fact that as our, our tiny church In this little nook of the world, we get to send a family to to the, the glory of God so people will know the glory of the gospel of Jesus. We get to go all over the world. So what does this mean for us right now? Live in light of glory. Live in the light of glory. Our eternal perspective needs to touch every facet of our day. We're putting this together with last week. We have God's presence with us in the ordinary. But listen, the ordinary is attached to the eternal. We need to have the eternal that influences our ordinary. So it lightens, it does, it lightens our load. So we're not so anxious and we're not so weirded out or angry at the way life goes. We don't have to be angry when our food takes too long to come. Because we have a, a feast waiting for us that is beyond all comprehension. So we want to see God's glory and then shine with the light of his glory. And I think that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know how glory is seen in our lives? By our obedience to God. That's how glory is seen. So No matter who we're interacting with, whether it's a neighbor, family member, coworker, no matter who we're interacting with, the, the, the obedience, the, the long long obedience in the same direction with God communicates His glory. and we're, we're in those relationships for them to see one day, for them to ask one day, "What is it about you? Why do you live the way that you do?" And Then we can describe a glory that we're living. In and through. Father, thank you. You are an amazing God, and your love is thrilling. I pray, Lord, that we we would understand and see your glory. And it would be that with the tangible fruit of, of feeling your love, but then loving you back with that love. Not to, not to placate some idol that we're fearful of. No, because your perfect love drives out all fear so we can be settled and rest in your presence, in your glory. God, thank you for sharing your glory with us. Thank you that even with the decorations of this room, we are celebrating your glory that has been sent to us. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming a man, one of us, save us. Thank you for your resurrection that seals every single promise. And because of your resurrection, we understand that your glory will continue to spread all over the earth as we are obedient to you. Jesus, be exalted in our hearts.